The following audio is from Summit Church. For more information on Summit Church, visit www.summitonline.tv. Church, thank you so much for joining us today, wherever you're at, however you are logging in. We are continuing through our study of the Gospel of Luke. We are going to finish chapter 3 in the fastest way you've ever seen, because Luke gives us a beautiful genealogy tracing Jesus all the way back to Adam. So we're going to look at that briefly. We are not even going to read those verses, and then we're going to actually fast forward to chapter 4, get the first 13 verses of it, and Jesus being tempted in the desert by Satan, kind of step two of the inauguration of his ministry. Step one was last week when we saw Jesus being baptized. He came up out of the water. The Holy Spirit descended on him, marking him as the Messiah, the one that John the Baptist had been preaching about, the one that he had said is coming, whose sandals I'm not worthy to even untie. We saw that last week. I think the temptation is just another step step of testing of Jesus so that we all can rest assured he is the one, the chosen one, whom God sent to be salvation for us all. So quickly, what I want to do is look at Luke chapter 3, verses 23 through 38. We're not going to read them. It's just a genealogy, a bunch of names that I cannot pronounce all of them, but I want us to see generally what genealogies are about. They have a purpose. The purpose of genealogies, it's threefold. Number one, they show the character, literally the character traits of a particular line of people. Within Jewish custom, it was believed that to become a true child of your father, you had to take on their characteristics. So oftentimes they would print genealogies to go, hey, look at how we can trace this characteristic back generation after generation after generation. For Jesus, obviously that characteristic is one of being for God and being about his purpose. And Jesus came from that line, the line of Abraham, the line of Isaac, the line of David. We can see that in Luke's genealogy. Number two, a genealogy demonstrates God's working through history with a particular group of people. So God chose his people way back with Abraham, and it's from that line of people that he does something great, promising all the way back to the beginning of Genesis that he would bless all nations through Abraham's offspring. And we see that through this genealogy. And then number three, a genealogy proves biological succession. This is more of a legal term, specifically for the distribution of property, all right? You've maybe been through that with probate, a trust. Hey, you have to be part of the family. You get some of this land that's been in the family forever, birthrights. But specifically within the children of God, there was a line from Moses's brother Aaron. They were the They were the Levites. They were the priests. You had to prove your lineage. You had to prove from a genealogy to be able to serve as a priest in the temple of God. We saw that when we studied the book of Nehemiah. So genealogies have great logistical purpose, but they also simply validate. Now, Matthew and Luke both write the most extensive genealogies. However, they are pretty different Now, I'm not suggesting you go spend the hours to study them, compare and contrast. Here's just a few of the big differences between Matthew and Luke's 
genealogy. Number one, Matthew goes from Abraham to Jesus, kind of the way I would do it, starting the oldest and going to the newest. Luke goes the opposite. He goes all the way back to Adam, but he starts with Jesus and then works backwards. Is that a huge deal? I don't think so, but it's interesting to note. Luke is the historian. He's trying to give us the most detailed account of Jesus' life. He takes it all the way back to the beginning. He goes backwards. Now he does miss several generations in there, but that's how he chooses to do it. Number two, Abraham to David. Okay, Matthew has 14 generations from Abraham to David. Luke has an almost identical representation of that period of time. But then from David to Joseph or Mary, however you want to see it, to Jesus, their genealogies don't line up at all. And so that's caused a lot of people to think, uh, do they know what they're writing about? Matthew and Luke are completely in disagreement. We cannot trace the life of Jesus. What's going on? Well, there have been several reasons given for this discrepancy. And the one that makes the most sense to me, now I'm not saying it's correct, it's simply this. Matthew traces Joseph's line and Luke traces Mary's line. Now, it's interesting because Luke doesn't mention any women in the genealogy, whereas Matthew mentions five. You've got Mary, you've got Rahab, you've got several others that are mentioned in there. Ruth. Luke doesn't mention any women, but I really do believe that what Luke does from David to Jesus is he traces Mary's line, and for one very specific reason. Joseph, biologically, has no tie to Jesus. Mary is his mother and God is his father. I think that Luke tracing Mary's line makes a little bit of sense. Not going to say it makes all the sense in the world. Here's the reality. The Bible loves genealogies. We, in our culture, we don't use them. Okay, that doesn't mean they're right or wrong, but we do not use genealogies. The Bible does. The Old Testament in Genesis begins with several genealogies tracing the line from Adam and Eve and so on and so forth, through Cain, Abel, Seth, so on and so forth. Multiple times in the book of Genesis, we see genealogies being traced. And then the last two books written chronologically of the Old Testament, First and Second Chronicles, they end with genealogies, showing how God has been working and is continuing to work with a plan and a purpose. And then the New Testament begins, at least for Matthew and Luke, with genealogies to trace back how important Jesus is and how God has been working from the very beginning to execute his rescue plan for all mankind. Now, we come to Luke chapter 4. And I'm sorry that we skipped over all those verses. If you want to go back and read them, please do. But we come to Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Jesus has been baptized. He's come up out of the water. The Holy Spirit has descended. And now he is immediately ushered into the wilderness, into the desert to be tempted by Satan. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. Luke mentions this multiple times. His baptism, his conception, his ministry beginning. The Holy Spirit was evident here. So 
Jesus, being full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan after he was baptized and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Mark says he was thrown out or thrust into the desert, almost like he was transported. Whether that's true or not, here's what we do know. He came up out of the water and he didn't have a huge baptism celebration. Immediately he went on to phase two. He left and he went into the desert led by the Holy Spirit. Verse two, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. That is a long season of temptation, a long season of hardship. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. No joke. Now you're going, I, 40 days, no one can go 40 days without eating. No, you, you can. You can very easily. My roommate in college did it before he got married. I saw him. Now he was a miserable sack by the end of his 40 days, but he did it. Didn't eat anything for 40 days. Jesus went into the wilderness, was tempted for 40 days, fasted for 40 days. He was hungry at the end of this period. And it's during that time where Jesus is physically being diminished that Satan starts to poke and to prod. Satan is an anointed cherub, okay? An angel that has fallen because of his pride. Ezekiel says he is beautiful beyond all recognition. See, a lot of times we picture Satan as this ugly, horned creature. No, 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 no. Satan is a beautiful angel, and he knows his role. He knows his purpose. He has a limited amount of time to deceive and to send those that he can off course, to remove them from the promises of God, to lie to them and to tempt them to take another path. He knows his role, and with Jesus, he gets one shot, a 40-day opportunity. Yet, I want you to hear this, church, through all of it, Satan is under God's control. God is 100% in control the whole time. Jesus was physically empty. He hadn't eaten in 40 days, but he was spiritually strong. Unfortunately, church, the opposite is often true for us. We have more than enough physically, but spiritually we are empty. And I, I don't want this to be the purpose of the message, but that is one of the beauties of fasting. You don't have to do it for 40 days, but to deny yourself physically for the purpose of filling yourself spiritually, that's what fasting is for. And if that's something you've never tried, I encourage you, start small, but try it. Saying, God, I don't need four meals a day to be satisfied. I just need you Deny yourself the physical so that you might be replenished spiritually. Jesus had all he needed with the Spirit, but after 40 days, he was hungry. Satan knew who he was dealing with. He knew that Jesus was the Messiah, the promised one, the one who would come to bring salvation to all who would believe. Jesus was the one who would ultimately vanquish Satan. Satan knew that, so he brought his big guns and he said, I got one chance while you're hungry and you're desperate. I got one chance to short circuit your plan. And if I can get you to do this, if I can get you to take the easy path, the path of disobedience to the Father, maybe, just maybe, I might have a hope. So we see Satan try to tempt Jesus in three very specific ways. Number one, Satan tried to tempt Jesus physically. Physically. 
Luke chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, I love this. Satan knows that Jesus is the son of God. He knows this. But he starts off swinging. If you're the son of God, tell this stone right here. He just picks a rock up off the desert floor. Tell this stone to become bread. Now you got to think Jesus would love some bread. And Jesus absolutely has the ability to turn that stone into bread. So Satan picks it up and says, go ahead. If you're God, prove to me you're God. I need to see it. Go ahead and butter that roll up. Well, well I'll, I'll throw it right to you. You can have it right now. Just prove to me that you are God. Jesus answered, verse 4, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Jesus takes that from Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, where God tells his children in the desert several thousand years before Jesus, hey, I need you to trust in me. I am your provision. I am your provider. You do not live on bread alone. Yes, if your cupboard is full, that's great. But you need me more than you need bread. And Jesus quotes that passage back to Satan saying, hey, if I have to go another 40 days with no bread, that's fine. I know who I am and I know whose I am and he's got me. He is my provision. I choose him. And I will not allow you to tempt me in my weakened state by making me think that I need to prove to you something that is already true. I have everything I need in my Father. What a beautiful, 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 beautiful place to live from. And church, I, I want to make it very simple this first temptation is one that I believe we are drawn into so very often because this first temptation, it pairs trust and provision. And what God is saying is that if you trust me, if you trust me with every fiber of your being, I will always make sure you have enough. But how often do we look at our life and go, I don't have enough. Oh, no, 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 no. I, I need more. I need more to be comfortable. I need more to be secure. I need more to feel complete and content. I need more. And we go try to build bigger barns and fill them with supplies and stuff that we think we need in this life. And God goes, oh, that's the opposite of provision. You're doing this on your own, on your own power. And you have the ability to go fill up your storehouse. But I... I have a plan for you that's so much greater. Will you trust me to provide? Jesus, in his most feeble of moments, said, yes, I trust God. Because man does not live just on bread. You take away all my bread, so be it. I, I choose him. I choose more of him. The second temptation that Satan would put before Jesus is the temptation of the eye. Luke chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. The devil then led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. Now, this is a very special moment. Jesus was able to see all the kingdoms, all the world. And in reality, Satan being the prince of this world, they, they are his for a time being. So he's able to show all the kingdoms of the world to Jesus. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and their splendor. 
because it's been given to me. And I can give it to anyone I want to. Here's all I need you to do. I need you to worship me. And then it will all be yours. In the Greek, the verb there is a singular tense, meaning just one time. All I need you to do, Jesus, is to bow down once and say that I am God. Say that I am king over all this. Just do it one time and I will give you all of the kingdoms of the world. I don't need you to tell anyone else. Just do it right now between you and I. I will see it. No one else has to. I'll give you everything. Jesus answered, verse 8. Oh, man, what a temptation. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. I can't bow down to you because you're not God. I can't serve you because you're not my father. I'm obedient to one. The temptation to short-circuit the process. Jesus knew that all the kingdoms of the earth would ultimately be his. He knew that. He had been promised that. This, there's no discrepancy in that. Yet Satan says, and we debate whether or not he really had the authority to do this, but Satan said, you bow down to me once, no one will ever see it. You do this, I'll just give it to you. You do not have to endure the cross. You do not have to endure the shame of three years of ministry and people denying you. You do not have to endure the shame of your closest disciples all fleeing you. You do not have to endure any of that. Just bow down to me once and I'll give you everything you see. It'll all be yours right now. What a beautiful, beautiful shortcut Satan is offering to Jesus. And Jesus says, no, I worship one God. And to worship you would be wrong. No, I, I won't let the temptation of my eye spoil the beauty of the blessing that is to come. And I know none of us have ever been offered the world for one act of disobedience. But I wonder how often as we gaze upon what others within our community have and we begin to covet those things, how often we start to think if maybe it might be easier. Maybe there's something about this other way of life. I want that. And my obedience to the Father is not producing that. So maybe, maybe I'm on the wrong side here. That is the temptation of the eye. And that temptation will cripple you. Because comparison is the thief of all joy. And when you start to look across the street and start to think, I deserve that, God's looking at you going, I've already given you so much. Just worship me. Trust me. Look to me. Later in Jesus' ministry, he will warn so clearly, do not, do not gain the whole world at the cost of your soul. Would it be worth it if you gained everything your eye could see and missed him? Denied yourself eternity with the Father. Would it be worth it? Jesus says no. He was offered all of it. And he said no. We should see his actions and we should respond in kind. And the final temptation a temptation of pride, Luke chapter 4, verses 9 through 13. The devil then led him to Jerusalem 
and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. This is where the Jewish people thought the Messiah would reveal himself. Now, Jesus obviously didn't, but the expectation was the Messiah would go to the top of the temple and reveal himself there. So that's where Satan takes him. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written. Now Satan is using scripture against Jesus. Jesus has been using scripture to combat temptation. Now Satan, knowing all the scripture, but deceiving Jesus by misquoting Psalm 91, he leaves out the most important part. He's using scripture back against him, but it won't work. Satan says, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Just jump. God's going to protect you. Nothing can befall you. Jesus answered, verse 12, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And then when the devil had finished all of his tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Satan lost. Jesus won. Jesus answers the final temptation, the temptation of his pride. Hey, if you're God's, he'll protect you. Show me. Show me that he cares about you. Show me that you're the one. Show me how special you are. And Satan loses because Jesus says, I'm not going to test anything. I don't need to test it. I don't need to short circuit or take a shortcut to my exalting. I will be exalted when the Father chooses to exalt me. And we know now, sitting here 2,000 years later, that that exalting will come after his death, burial, and resurrection. He will be exalted to the right hand of God the Father, where he will take his seat, his promised seat, his seat of authority, ruling over all the kingdoms of this earth, all the kingdoms that he can see. He will be God. He will be the chosen and anointed one. And he will be our hope. Jesus, in his most stricken state, did not succumb. And that's why Hebrews 4.15 can tell us that we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our needs, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are. These temptations are not unique to Jesus. They are temptations we face every single day. But we have a high priest who understands that because he was tempted in every way just as we are, yet he was without sin. He did not succumb. And we can trust him to walk with us, to lead us and guide us through the things in our life that cause us so much trepidation. Yet he knows because he was tempted in every way. Temptation is everywhere. It's calling us to leave God's plan for our lives. Satan knows what God desires for us, and he will find ways to dig and to prod and to find little cracks in your faith and in your belief. He knows where to best hit you. Look at what he did with Adam and Eve in the garden. He didn't just show up in a demonstrative way. He goes, oh, hey, come here. I know God said you can't eat this fruit, but it's delicious. You should really just take a bite. Just take a bite. He says, it, he says it'll make you aware of things, and he doesn't want you to be aware of things, and so just take a bite. He's misleading you. What a beautiful cell. Satan is so good at this. 
He knows how to deceive, mislead, and ruin. He knows that to do so physically, when we are at our lowest, for me personally, when am I the greatest to be tempted when I'm the most bored, when I'm the most exhausted, when my mind is completely empty. That's when Satan can come in and just call me towards things that I would never naturally choose. He knows how to place things in front of our eye that we desire that are not of the Lord, that are not of God. He knows how to do that. And he knows that we are all prideful. He knows that if you tell us God's withholding knowledge and information that you deserve, you need it. it God owes you. He owes you. You've been nothing but faithful. He owes you. How dare you trust him? You should be getting so much more. Satan knows exactly where to hit us. Exactly how to break us. And that's why John, the gospel writer, in one of his letters that he wrote very late in his life, he talked about Satan and the world and how devastating it can be. He wrote this in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. He said, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, okay, if anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, that's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the pride of life. Do you, do you see there? Do you see what John's talking against? Same things that Satan tried to tempt Jesus with. Those things, they come not from the Father, but they come from the world. The world and its desires, they are going to pass away. So even if you gain it all, you'll lose him. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. Jesus, in his weakest moment, was obedient to God. In his obedience, he rejected the temptations of this world, and he chose to love God. And that is what we are called to do today, to reject the temptations of this world, to love God no matter what, even if it costs us physically right now, we are choosing what is better. And we're choosing the eternal, not the temporary. As you look at your life and as you reflect today on this passage, do your actions, do your desires, do your plans, the best laid plans of men, do they align with eternity or do they align with this world? Are you striving with everything in you to gain, acquire, possess, become, or are you striving with everything in you to be obedient, obedient to the Father, obedient to his word, obedient to the purpose and the plan that he has for your life. I pray today that you will wrestle with that question. I pray today that you will wrestle through this passage. I pray today that you will trust in the one, the one who has been tempted in every way yet was without sin because he knows what you're going through. He's conquered those temptations and he's here for you. Father, help us. Help us to live in faithful obedience. Help us to not be drawn into the schemes and the lies of Satan, the schemes and the lies of this world. Help us to love you instead with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We need your grace and your Holy Spirit. 
We thank you for the picture of Jesus. We thank you for him being our great high priest, the one who goes before us, the one who presents us to you, Father. We thank you for Jesus. We need him. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.